Music, news, entertainment. It's all right here. This is The Kelly Alexander Show. Hey, it's Kelly, and this week we chat with New York-based author and writer Anthony Boza, who has written for Rolling Stone, Maxim, Spin, Paper, and Blender. We have some great new music as well for you to check out from Alesso featuring Liam Payne, the Black Eyed Peas, and Canadian recording artist Lennon Stella. Anthony Boza is a New York Times best-selling author writing books about Eminem, Slash, ACDC, Tommy Lee, Derek Jeter, Artie Lang, Wyclef Jean, and the list goes on. Anthony, super excited to welcome you to The Kelly Alexander Show. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I am great. Thank you so much for, for making time to do this. Um, I've been a fan of your work for several years now. I mentioned to you before we started the interview that I had re- uh, read the Slash book several years ago and was totally taken by it. And I wanted to ask you, I guess, right off the hop with regards to uh, one of your latest projects. You've now written two books on Eminem. The latest one is Not Afraid, The Evolution of Eminem. Uh, it just came out last year. What was it like going back to this subject after about a 15-year break? What did you sort of notice the most about that 15 15-year evolution of Eminem? Um, I mean, it was interesting. You know, I was I wrote the very first national cover story on him ever back in 1989. And, you know, I've always been pretty close to the camp uh, when his best friend Proof was murdered. I was the only journalist allowed into the funeral and the wake and, you know, went to, like, all of these sort of events with family and stuff. So I've always been really close to that, that camp. Um, but I can, you know, I did the book mostly because this sort of latest phase of his career, I think, was really misunderstood. He's changed so much. It's just, it's like, it's crazy. It's basically a different person. Um, a lot of that was getting sober. You know, he was a lot younger then. He was definitely deep in the just party vibes and all that kind of stuff. Um, what I really wanted to get at was was all of these records that have been released in the last 15 years. Uh, they've really, the media has really kind of turned on him. And uh, they really weren't given sort of the critical due. And I really just wanted to take the time and do that. I also, uh, the first book I wrote in, back in 2003 was really focused on his origin story and everything from, you know, his own words and everything like that. This was, I spent more time actually speaking to his best friends and the ones that watched him suffer uh, while trying to get sober. You know, he, he overdosed and nearly died. He was, he was really addicted um, to drugs. So... It, it was just, it's a, it was an entirely different book and a different approach. And to me, it was like the first one was, you know, right there at the epicenter. And this one was sort of like really about getting sober and how his music has changed. And um, giving the records that have come out in the last few years, uh, like their critical due. Because I felt like a lot of critics just didn't do that. They were sort of like, oh, Eminem is angry still and he raps really fast. And, and you know, it's just, there's nothing really to pay attention to here. And pretty much I disagree with that. So that's why I did it. And can you talk just a little bit about his personality? Because you said it's almost like it's a different person. So was he more open in the past? Like, is he more reserved now? Because it just seems like he has become a hermit. He most definitely has. Um, He was, in the past, he really was embodying the like, you know, I don't, I just don't give an F attitude. (laughs) Um, And he really was just like, this is who I am. It is all out there. And that's who he was. He was going to be successful on his own terms. He was going to be accepted for for that and really did not care what you thought of him. That's changed. You know, he's he's not angry anymore. You know, he's completely been successful on his own terms. Um, Getting sober really made him change his entire life. He basically talks to probably about seven people on a regular basis. You know, this is, these are things that people have to do that have, you know, dependency problems, like staying sober successfully. 
usually calls for an entire restructuring of your life. And he also really wants to be left alone. The guy was he's not really an attention-seeking type of celebrity. He, like, never left Detroit. You know, he, he could have moved to L.A. He could have done a lot more movies. He really is kind of like a, a pretty, you know, homebody-ish, blue-collar kid who just loves rapping. He just loves hip-hop. So um, I would say that what has changed is that he's unapologetic about that. He has everything he needs on his, like, Detroit compound. There's, like, a full recording studio there. He's, like, indoor pool, outdoor pool. The guy doesn't really need to go anywhere. And so he doesn't. You know, he, he can, like, decide to do a concert and uh, and go to it. It's going to sell out every single record. Another reason you know, I really wanted to do the book was that in the last 15 years, people have said, like, oh, Eminem is over. But every single album he put out was number one in, like, 29 countries and went platinum. So, I, you know, there was, like, this change in, you know, basically critics are sort of like, he's a, you know, nobody cares about Eminem anymore. It's not a big deal. But um, I couldn't disagree more. So, and so, okay, you know, all, all the fans around the world couldn't disagree either. So I guess the big change, you know, to answer your question in a very long roundabout way is that he's gotten, he's really sort of, you know, dialed it back and, um, and uh, he's socially distanced. He's <laughs> way ahead of the curve there. But, uh, yeah, he, he really is just not doing anything he doesn't want to do, not talking to anyone if he doesn't have to. Um, he more or less has stopped doing all interviews. The only ones that he, that he did in 2017 and since then have been sort of controlled by he and his management. Um, you know, like, and they're just like released on YouTube. You know, that's really taking any sort of media out of it if you're kind of like making your own interview video where you answer the, the questions that are expected about the making of a record and just really edit it and release it on your own. That's, that's really, yeah, <laughs> that's okay. controlling everything. That's all I have to say. And I know you said he, he doesn't speak to many people anymore. Uh, I'm just wondering how important you think Elton John plays a part in his life. Cause I just finished reading Elton John's biography not long ago. And I know yeah. that he talks a fair amount about Eminem in the chapter where he sort of talks about how he's a sponsor for certain celebrities. And so I'm just yeah. wondering if you think he plays still an important part in, in Eminem's recovery and continued uh, health. They, yeah, they speak every week as far as I, I I know, still, um, they're very close. That was the first call he made. He, uh, you know, he OD'd and like it was on Christmas, uh, he almost died. And when he was really ready, he sort of came back and detoxed, but knew he wasn't quite, he knew he was going to do drugs again. Okay. Once he was really, really ready, the first call he made was to Elton John. So those two are incredibly tight. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. And um, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you this just because I know that Eminem's had his fair share of uh, security, or I should say celebrity feuds or disagreements or whatever you want to, or clapbacks. Uh, what's your thoughts on the fact that I, I always feel like, in a way, Mariah Carey got the best of him? <laughs> you mean because <laughs> how so? I just feel like he because I always feel like he claps back really well. Still angry at, about it? Yeah, and I just feel like she's the, I don't know if she's the one that got away or or she really was crazy to him. I don't know, but it just feels like out of all the the sort of clapbacks that he's done, I just feel like it never really worked when he clapped back at Mariah. Like I still feel like she kind of she came out of the battle on the top on that one. Interesting. Uh, well, I mean, I will say this: he he's still talking about it so long after the fact. So it, I think it really got under, she got under his skin, but I mean, listen, maybe it was just something about Mariah because, you know, Nick Cannon is going for him and nobody cares, but he released like five diss tracks, like just a couple months ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. And they've been divorced for quite a while. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe Mariah really does something, 
that uh, that we can't even imagine. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it must it, be that. It must be must be as powerful as that Christmas song. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to ask you to. Um, What's the difference for you process-wise between writing a biography versus when you co-write? Because I know that there is a difference there. Oh, very, very, very different. Yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, I've written a few M&M books, and I wrote a book called Why ACDC Matters, which is basically um, <laughs> just me kind of ranting at the fact that they were never critically acclaimed, and they're so good. So that's a whole other story. Um, <laughs> but other than that, when I'm co-writing, the biggest difference is, you know, those books are me writing as myself. I'm co-writing as the other person. So it's a bit like um, doing it. It's like being in a play, if you will, for a certain amount of time. So I'm, I am that person on the page. My job is to think like them and write the way that they would write if, you know, they were kind of a trained writer. So, so it's a, it's a completely different thing in a lot, in some ways it's easier because the, you know, the beginning, middle and well not really the end because usually the people i co-write with are alive but you know the story's right there and it's like sitting in front of me um it's just a different set of skills i really have to like hyper observe them and um imitate them at least in my head you know usually by the end of it i can kind of imitate them speaking but oh wow um, that is not that's i i'm not fishing for you to ask me to do that but (laughs) (laughs) but it's totally totally different you know, I have to like, I have to sort of spend enough time with them to get the natural cadence of the way they tell a story and um, also get them to trust me and tell their stories and be truthful about it. And then, you know, I sort of put it together in a way that will hopefully keep the, the reader turning the page. And how do you do that, Anthony? Like, do you like sit there and do, uh, you know, let's say audio interviews with them where you're recording what they're saying and then kind of write, let's say, a, a, you know, one of their experiences in life, like let's say how they got their first record deal or whatever. And then do you send that off to them so they're okay with how it reads? Like, I'm just wondering how that actual process of you becoming them works with regards to their own personal stories. Um... Well, first, I take a deep dive in the closet. I'm just kidding. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, basically, I record all the interviews and then, um, you know, have them just, like, get the transcript of that. And uh, most of the time, I like to listen back to the tapes while I'm I'm reading the transcripts because there's just ways, like, there's places that people pause when they tell a story. And, you know, that's the sort of fine-tuning of it. It's not just, like, you know, you can't just record someone telling a story and then edit it and throw it on a page and have it come alive the way I like my books to come alive. So, um, I usually need to pick, I'm very, very careful with the first sample that I send them because some people, uh, will see themselves on the page and might not realize that they speak a certain way. And it might, you know, they might, it's, it's very tricky because you can't just show them, you can't just show them a mirror. You have to like, figure out what they see when they look in the mirror and show them that. Okay. If yeah, that that's a talent. Yeah, yeah. There's like another there's like another psychological layer that goes to it. So it's like it's very tricky. The first thing I show someone, you know, I I remember showing Slash something um and he liked it and then I wrote like 200 pages and he was like this just really isn't right. And I was like, but why did you let me write most of a book? <laughs> so um <laughs> What I really, what the issue was, was that he was, I needed to show him something of, there was, I guess, a period of his life that he was more familiar with, because, you know, we were doing all the childhood stuff, and that, that sort of turned him off. You have to kind of figure out 
you, you got to figure out a couple things. Like earning the trust is different with every single person I've worked with. Um, but generally, you know, I spend some time, do some interviews. I take one sample from that. I spend a lot of time getting their voice right. So whatever like period of their life they see G most forthcoming about, that's usually what I will like sort of hone down to, uh, you know, basically get like shine it to a fine, fine, perfect point of how I think that they're going to sound throughout the book. Um, and once we agree on that and they get it and they're comfortable with it, then I sort of dive in and do the whole thing. Okay. Joining us on The Kelly Alexander Show is New York Times bestselling author Anthony Boza, and uh, you can check him out and learn all about him. Grab his social media handles on his website, aboza.com. How do you think you managed to get these amazing celebrities, uh, you know, that have had so much success on stage to trust you, like like a Slash, like a Wyclef Jean? Um, it, you know, it, it's really different. I wish I could say there was a formula, but it's really kind of funny to know each individual person. Um, Slash, Slash basically told, he didn't even tell me, he's a very, he sort of is, uh, he definitely plays his, keeps his cards close to his, close to the best, and, uh, and doesn't give out compliments a lot. Um, yeah, I've basically heard from a mutual friend over a year later when it was and why it was that he decided to do the book with me. Um, he didn't even tell me, but he knew that they would tell me. So, <laughs> um, that's the kind of guy he is. I mean, he's the best. Like he, I love him. He's amazing. Um, but he had met with about five or six other writers and people have been trying to get him to do this book for years. And I think I was the seventh person, uh, you know, his manager at the time was like, all right, listen, this, this person is different. I've worked with this manager before. So we, we've known each other for a while. He was like, listen, just give him a shot. And it was because I spent eight hours with him, with him telling stories all night. And I didn't ask about Axl Rose or Guns N' Roses once, but that's mostly because his childhood is absolutely fascinating. I mean, you've read, you've read the book, like his childhood is like cooler than most like adult rock stars. He was oh, yeah. that cool by 12. Yeah. So <laughs> I was like just riveted, um, you know, his mom had an affair with David Bowie and was a costume designer and just all this cool LA music stuff. So that's what it was with him. I, you know, cause I think every other writer went right for the obvious, like let's hear about why you need Axelos. And this is, you know, before they got back together and stuff. So I just didn't go there. I, I don't know. I mean, I just try to treat them like people and, and whatever fascinates me about their story. Um, I just kind of ask a lot of questions about, and it's usually, you know, I do tons of research. So I usually know already about the, the stuff that we all know about. Um, I don't know, taking interest in the stuff that makes him a regular person, uh, I think establishes a different kind of trust. And it would be my advice to a fledgling writer, go that route. That's awesome. Because I was going to ask you actually later in the interview, like for an aspiring music writer right now that either wants to work for like a Rolling Stone or a Blender or, uh, you know, wants to write books like you're doing, like what is the biggest piece of advice you would you would give to them? Uh, find a better career, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I would say go back in time to when there used to be magazines. Um, first of all, you know, it's, I feel very privileged to have been sort of the last of, uh, you know, I'm one of the people who, who's able to sort of make a career in actual print magazines where we had multiple editors who all like went to, you know, great colleges and were really good at their job. Um, you know, like that's where I learned to write because in you know, Rolling Stone, it, when I was there, it came out every two weeks and, we were constantly working and I had three editors 
all of whom went to like incredible colleges, all editing my stuff and giving me ideas about how to make it better. Um, when digital, you know, when like digital took over everything and people expected, you know, their, their media quicker, not necessarily better and instantly on their computers rather than waiting for something to come out, you know, in paper, um, that changed everything. Like, you know, they had to cut corners and, and suddenly there weren't three other things to work on that stuff. It would be like, you know, just whatever I would write for the, for like rollingstone.com would just go right up. So I had to do all that myself. Um, so those days are kind of done. I, I mean, I would say like, you find your voice and make it different than everyone else and just stick to that. Um, it's hard. It's definitely hard. I mean, I always like give advice to any music writers that, that contact me or happen to meet. Um, and you know, I know like these kids are working really hard for like, I think they get like, you know, a hundred bucks, maybe an article. If, if, if that, and they go up online and sort of people forget about them. Like they're, they're unfortunately they're not getting the type of in the field, almost like I called it like graduate school, like on the job graduate school is kind of what I got. Uh, I feel bad that people aren't getting that. And that's like all through publishing, you know, with my books, I, um, I come from a time where there used to be like, you know, really conscientious copy editors and editors. And, and unfortunately that's kind of gone. Like it's, they're out there for sure. I'm not saying it's across the board, but sometimes, um, I say that I, I spend more time trying to do all of that myself. And it's actually really hard. If you're writing like a 350 page book and you've written it, and you're reading it for the third or fourth time, you are going, things are going to get by you. Oh, yeah. Um, and we're in the kind of day and age where, like, the person creating is responsible for all of it, um, unfortunately. So I guess I would probably give them that gloom and doom speech that I just gave you first. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you still really love it, then you know that you are going to do it. I mean, I think anyone who's a writer kind of has to be one. It's like, you know, it's not easy. It's really not easy. And it's sort of, you know, um, it's great for social distancing, but um, <laughs> it's sort of an isolated existence. And I think you either, you know, do it because you have to or because you can. Um, I, I don't know. You know, it's it's tougher than ever. But I would say that the best, you know, kind of relationships to nurture, I guess, for someone who wants to be a music writer are directly with the artists and managers. Um, you know, I obviously it's, it's sort of the same, I guess, with digital and people have to make friends with editors and, and pitch ideas and all that kind of stuff. Um, I don't really do that anymore. I just mostly focus on books and like the occasional article. Uh, but I think, you know, the best relationships I've had are from, because of what I do, you know, which is mostly the co-writes is just being, getting close to the artists and managers and, and earning that trust there that you're going to, and take care of their story and make it something that everyone, you know, can, can digest without making them feel, um, I guess, untrue to themselves. Now, I wanted to pull you back to a second uh, or for a second about your, your process. Like with, we'll keep using Slash as the example, um, when you took on that project and when he agreed to let you take on that project, like how long was that process start to finish? And did you have to like move to LA to, you know, sort of immerse yourself in it? Yeah, no, I definitely moved to LA. Um, <laughs> I, I was in LA. You know, every person again is different. Um, Slash, it was perfect timing. So um, when I met Slash, he was not yet completely clean and sober. And then he sort of like, we got the book deal and then he kind of disappeared. And that's because he went to full hardcore rehab for three months. Uh, when he came out, 
is when we really got into the book. So, you know, like I said, every single person's different, but for him, he was, when he was still using, he would like, uh, from like midnight to 4am, he would stay in this kind of little studio hang room in his house. And he would like to drugs and smoke cigarettes and play guitar after his wife and kids were asleep. So he wasn't doing any of the drugs anymore. He smoked a lot of cigarettes and never opened a window, by the way. Oh, wow. Um, so <laughs> it was rough. So he filled that time with me and telling me stories and got really into the book, which was fantastic because he was like willing, able, and was like, shit, I need something to do right now. So, um, so that's kind of what we did. I would show up at his house three days a week at around midnight and I'd be there till like four in a room with Slash having him tell me all the stories that made our like nearly 500 page book. Um, and that's the way it was. It was totally immersive. I kind of immerse until I have a lot of raw material. And it's like, we're, we've told the story. Then I disappear and I do my strange brain transformation and go away and write the thing over a couple of months and don't do anything else. Um, like I see my friends and I'm just, you know, kind of like distracted and like that's kind of all I do that's why I say it's like being in like a limited run play okay you know? so it's like <laughs> I, I really get into it and I do it like every day and then I want to like shed the skin and be like yes here it is it's that. so that's kind of how I do it and that's what I did and then I um you know showed him that he's again he was he was different because I did 200 pages and he was like you know this isn't really right and I was like you couldn't have said something before then, but okay, let's fix this. Let's do it. So I sort of went, I jumped ahead to the part of the story he was more comfortable with, which was his adult life. And then went back and sort of tailored the rest once I sort of got the voice right in the adult world. But, um, then, then you bring it, you know, then obviously they read stuff all throughout, but when it's fully done, that's when they have it and need to go through it page by page carefully and uh, make all their final changes. And then I sort of in integrate all that stuff. And then we have like a final product. And I'm working with the editor kind of throughout, mostly like, you know, just keeping them up to date and um, hopefully having them be super excited. And, uh, and that's it. So again, with Slash, uh, he... <laughs> He, uh, he's, he's a funny one. He kept saying, he was with Velvet Revolver then and kept saying like, I have a bunch of changes. We were getting closer and closer to the absolute drop dead deadline. And finally he was like, he wouldn't tell me what they were at all. Oh my God. I was like, yeah, there's like, I have a lot, you know, all the way through. And finally my publisher said, you know, okay, I'm expensing a plane ticket. I'm flying you to Canada. <laughs> um, and you're going to sort this out because we have a lot of money riding on this and so just go do it. So when I got to his hotel room, um, I realized that he hadn't even started reading it. And he opened the first page the second I got there. And I was like, yeah, okay. And whipped out his like red pencil. And I was like, are you kidding me right now? Oh my God. So I ended up, you know, going on the Velvet Revolver tour for a week, which was totally fun. But, uh, but that's how it was. So it's, that's not the way you want it to go all the time. When I finally got back to New York and finished every last change, um, I like pulled a couple all-nighters, just went for it and got this thing done as quickly as possible, like nipping and tucking it all. Um, my published, my editor's assistant was like at my door at eight in the morning. Like I had handed it to her and the book came out a month later, like the first printing. 
Oh my that God. is not the way publishers want anything to happen, believe me. It's like, <laughs> they luckily, you know, it hit the bestseller list. It was a wildly successful book. It's still, you know, in hard in print, obviously, and uh, and it's a classic. It's, it's according to a bunch of people, but um, that's not the way it should happen. Wow. <laughs> but that's the way that one happened. <laughs> oh, my God. And what was the difference between, like, that and maybe Tommy Lee? Because I realize they're in the same kind of genre. So was it as chaotic with Tommy Lee, or was it a different experience for you? Um, well, Tommy Lee, I lived with for nine months oh. while writing the book. Okay, that <laughs> works. That was the first time I did a co-write. Yeah, yeah, I did. I lived, he moved me in, um, which is not worth, like, very, 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 very best friends. You know, very close friends to this day. He's amazing. Um, but I'd never done a co-write before. I'd only done my first Eminem book and then got this book deal and, uh, you know, didn't really know what to expect. I figured, you know, I was going to figure out this co-write thing as I went along. And um, I went to L.A. again. And uh, for two weeks, Tommy was just gone. He, like, had, he was partying with, like, a very rich friend on a yacht in Mexico. And I was like, okay. All right. So I was, like, in my little apartment. And then um, I started going, you know, at that time, he wasn't in Motley Crue. And he basically is, like, kind of a big brother to me. And then he was, like, a big brother who was hazing me. Uh, so I would mention Molly Crew, and he would be like, I'm not in that band. I don't want to talk about that. And I'd point out nicely that he and he joined the band at 17, and he's in his like late 40s and really hasn't done much else. No offense. You know, he had nothing to say him and stuff. But like, we can't ignore 17 to 40. Like, that's all you did. You got to talk about it. So he started being like, all right, I'll do it if you do a shot of Jack right now. So that would start at like 11 in the morning. And I was just trying to get the work done. But there was, I was like never sober enough to leave for like the first couple of weeks. I couldn't drive down this windy hill in Malibu. I wasn't going to do that. I do not drink and drive. I was like, no way. So I ended up sleeping over. And finally, he's like, you know what, dude? I don't think I want to pay for your apartment anymore. I think I haven't had a roommate in a really long time. So you're going to stay here. And that's just kind of the beginning of nine months odyssey that we can do in another interview. But it was amazing. So that one was like, I wrote that one um, kind of in the trenches because I wrote it there. Um, in some ways, I would say that one really is the closest to being inside the mind of the personality that I worked with because Tommy would, he hooked the monitor up to my laptop. So as I was writing, he would like kick back, be like drinking, I believe he was drinking watermelon martinis or just things like that. Um, so he'd be drinking a watermelon martini, literally reading the line I was writing in his voice as I was writing it. So it was like super meta and amazing. And I could like nip it, tuck it, make it sound more like him. Um, and he also completely indulged every insane idea about how to deconstruct a rock and roll autobiography. Um, like we had his, uh, I made his penis argue with him about who's more famous because of the sex tape with Pamela Anderson, you know, um, that's in there. Uh, I put footnotes, like academic footnotes as myself in there that like have no business being in like, you know, the famous metal musician's autobiography. Um, he also like, when I got notes back from the editor, we had a very stuffy British editor who didn't get a lot of the American slang. And Tommy was like looking over my shoulder while I was answering these things like on paper. And he'd be like, who asked that stupid question? And then he would say something so funny that I just started putting his answers back in. And we have that also in there in the form of like, we'll look like post-it notes or the book. <laughs> so 
<laughs> I mean, I haven't lived with another artist I've worked with like for nine months, but maybe if I did, it would be like that. Like, this is really what it's like to hang out with him and be in his brain. So I'm proud of that one for that reason. That's awesome. <laughs> it's quite, it's quite a bit different. Flash is a lot more serious. <laughs> Tommy's really funny and silly and goofy and lovable. And not that Flash isn't all those things. He's just like, he's Flash. He's cool. He's got his sunglasses on all the time, you know? Yeah, well, that's, that's not an act. That's what he's like. He's just like, hey, man, what's going on? He's like, got this really serene, um, but unflinching sort of point of view on the world. Okay, that makes sense. And Tommy, Tommy's just dead. Tommy's t- look at him. He spins upside down in a drum set in leather <laughs> underwear. Come on, it's true. <laughs> it's true. And uh, you know the fact that you have eight, uh, you know, New York Times bestselling books. How does Anthony Boza now pick, uh, you know, his projects? Like, how do you do this? Um, well, I, 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 I start. I started to just get people approaching me. Um, I've had to turn down a couple just because I've been overbooked. Some of them really stung because I would have done them. Uh, one of which is the Anthony Kiedis book. I had to turn that down because I was literally booked up. Uh, but anyway, now, so I do get a lot of people coming to my agent or my manager or emailing me directly. Um, that Yeah, that's a lot of it. I've pursued a few uh, and a lot of times, a lot of the people that I really want to work with are usually are quite a bit older and they've sort of had a journalist that they've known forever. Um, so they've chosen not to go with me, but I'm, I'm lucky enough that things come to me or else I have like a couple of people who reach out for me and, and that's kind of how it works now. And when you schedule yourself, like, is it a book a year? Like how does, I'm just trying to figure out like time frame wise, like how you structure your, your working life. I would like for you to figure that out and then tell me, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, a lot of it's like supply and demand. You know, the thing about co- the co-writes is really getting the person when they have enough going on, but not too much going on. Because if you think about it, you know, no matter how well I get along with them, I'm basically like coming over to their house and we're doing some form of psychotherapy in a way because it's like you're they're telling me stories i'm asking follow questions i'm looking for themes of, throughout their life of things to bring up kind of through the book to make it an interesting story right so mm-hmm. you don't want to doing that after like you've played a gig or you know that kind of stuff sort of hard so it's a lot of it is just really timing and people at certain stages of their career where they might be ready to look back you know i don't i don't think it's always like great to do a co-written autobiography with somebody who's still kind of in the throes of it, you know, Um, that's why like the Eminem thing was a biography better that I, I, you know, I'm writing about what's happening to him, giving my opinion. He's probably not going to be ready to do that. So, um, so I guess a lot of it's timing and willingness, you know, uh, if someone's got like, they're done with an album cycle and a touring cycle and maybe they want to chill a little bit. That's kind of when you get them. Or I mean, in the case of Slash, like being completely sober um, and clean, he was, you know, a little more clear headed and ready to, to talk about stuff. So I guess there's really no, no straight answer, but it, it, it depends on, on their willingness to, you know? So it's like Slash was very, very workhorse about it. Like you're coming over here three days a week. Um, we did like four hours of session and I did that. I stayed out there for about three months. Okay. Three months we were literally, we were done. And that's a 500 page book. It's one of my longer ones. So, um, 
you know, Tommy nine months and he wanted to be there every step of the way. He wanted me, he wanted me to like live like him and write his book, which I totally respect. I think that's super cool. Yeah. Although it was a lot to keep up with, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, and I was younger than him. <laughs> it's hard as hell to keep up with that guy. So, um, someone like, you know, Y class was very, it was more like going to do a bunch of magazine articles. He was like kind of hands off ish and, yeah, like the product, but that was a whole different experience. Uh, usually, you know, once I gathering, gathering the material is always the variable. Once mm-hmm. I have enough hours and I know I have a book, I, I write kind of fast. Uh, so it usually takes me like three to four months Okay. to, to be done. I mean, if a publisher, you know, it, these things get tricky because the publisher wants to set a date. The artist might say, you know, I'm going to be able to give you this amount of time and then things come up and then, you know, then they're like squishy. Basically, I always kind of get jammed and have to like, you know, a lot of the time. So I get jammed up because uh, because the artists have sort of changed their schedule. But my due date is the same. Okay. So it's a little tricky. I like to say when I sign up to work with someone that it's going to be a year if you give me everything I need okay. <laughs> and it'll be like, you yeah, got three or four months of intense me or six months of less intense. And then I need, I usually say six, but I'm often done sooner. I don't like to tell it to too many publishers, <laughs> although this is probably not the venue to say this, but cause then they expect it. And yeah. Anyway, <laughs> next. <laughs> That'll be our secret. And when it comes to publishers, Anthony, how does that work? Like, if you, you like, like, you know, use the Tommy book or use the Slash book. Like, how do you partner up with a publisher? Like, like, yeah, do they come to you? Like, how does that all fly? Uh, two different things happen. They will either go and sign up a celebrity and then figure out the co-writer, in which case they'll call my representatives um, and say, "Hey, we have someone to signed up. I think this is a good match. Let's have them meet." And then we take it from there. Or I meet with the celebrity um, and we decide to work together. We establish sort of a you know contract that we're going to sell this project together. I prepare all the you know materials that, to give to editors to be like, here's a sample chapter. Here's what it's like. We come in and shake hands and they see that like we, we get along. We actually will be able to do a book together. Yeah. And, uh, and then it goes from there. So either we sell it together and I'm already like with the artist or it's already been sold to a publisher and they come to me. Okay, got it. And correct me if I'm wrong, but when I was doing my research, I didn't seem to see where you have written a book about just like a female artist on her own. Like, is that, is that true? Or is there, is that down the the pipeline? Like you might do that? Um, I would love to. I did. I wrote an entire book with one um, who I had to sue to get paid and I'm not allowed to talk about. She was married to a guy who used to be in Nirvana. Okay. Oh, now (laughs) I do remember that part. Yeah. You know who that is? (laughs) I do know. Yeah. Yeah. Not the first person to have trouble with her. That's all I'm going to say. But I spent uh, about two and a half, three years writing a book um, that I really wish people could read because it's like, it's a 90s rock book that 90s rock fans want so yeah. that didn't go so well okay. <laughs> um, you know I get I could I could see people being skeptical about you know maybe like not having a male right in their voice but I feel pretty comfortable I feel capable no yeah. one's uh, no one else has, has come to me I, I had a meeting with another celebrity but I didn't take that job because it was um, she's like yeah even <laughs> She's, yeah, she's crazy. <laughs> okay, got she, it. She was in Mean Girls. She has red hair. She's oh. notably insane. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, 
had a meeting with that one. I was like, oh god, I can't, not, I can't do that. I could hang, handle like Artie Lang, insane heroin addict, uh, <laughs> comedian, Tommy Lee, great. This one, nope. <laughs> I was terrified. So that didn't work. Um, I just don't think I've, I've had the right meetings yet. I would love to write a woman's story. I would absolutely love to. That's awesome. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, I really would. I, I have a proposal out there about a, uh, I don't know if it's going to happen though. It's like she, it's someone who doesn't really have a social media platform, but a two time Olympian who, um, wants to write about mental health cause she grew up with a, a suicidal mother okay. and her sister committed suicide and all this kind of stuff. Her name's Juliana Furtado. Um, we have that out to market right now, but unfortunately she sort of retired in, in, uh, the nineties and doesn't have a crazy, honestly, it's all social media platform these days, which is kind of sad too. But anyway, I have not written, I've not had a successful project happen with, um, a female co-writer. I would absolutely love to. So call me. All right. We're <laughs> going to put that out in the universe. Anthony. <clears throat> Please. I like that. No, yeah. I would love to. I really would. I really, really would. And uh, I wanted to talk to you, too, because I was slightly stalking you, of course, as I was doing my prep for our chat. And uh, I, I listened that's to... What an, a good inter- that's what a good researcher does, though. Good. Yeah, yeah well, that's me. I was subject, all, so over no your, all over your social media. And then I found a, an interview that you'd done, I guess, not too long ago on another podcast. And uh, you mentioned that you have an upcoming project with, uh, with Raekwon. So I'm wondering, is that happening? Is that something that's coming down the pike soon? I do. Yeah. Um, well, it has not sold yet. Um, we, but yes, I'm working with Raekwon. That is a case where I think he, he heard about me and they came to me. So we have a collaboration agreement. We are doing that. That, that book proposal um, is finished and going to market, which I think, I guess there's still a market during this pandemic crisis. Yeah. Um, so that will probably be slowed down, but yeah, no, that, that book proposal is, it's, uh, going out to publishers like right now. And Raekwon is amazing. I can't wait to tell his side of the Wu-Tang story. It's going to be awesome. So that's, that's the next one. And, um, I am after that, I am going to be working with Jerry Harrison from the talking Heads. Oh, cool. To tell okay. that. That's going to be cool too. Are you booked up now for like the next two years as, because of like these two projects? Those are the two projects we're working on now. Um, and that will definitely be, you know, it just, again, it like depends on how quickly those guys want to work. But uh, I'm going, you know, I've done the three books at the same time. That was a little crazy. I didn't plan it that way. I would say two in a year, and those will come out next year, and then we'll move on to, to another one. But um, I, that will those two will carry me through to this time next year okay. if all goes well, if industry begins again. I don't, you know, I don't yeah. even know. Well, people we need something need to read, Anthony, there. so you need to get on that. People do have time to read. That yeah. is good. Yeah. That is very good. <laughs> I, have a, I have 10 books. You guys can read them all. Uh, I'm, I'm now. Well, I want to. I didn't read the Tommy one, so I'm now that you've told me all about it. I can't wait to read that one. And I wanted also to to touch on your your podcast because obviously we here on the Kelly Alexander Show are big fans of podcasting. And so, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Winel? Yes, I will. Um, Winel is like my pet project, and it's really fun. Um, so I'm kind of a wine and food person, and uh, mostly you know wine is. I absolutely love wine. And so this podcast, the whole conceit of the podcast, which is W-I-N-Y-L, is that my guest chooses their favorite record or favorite artist, and my wine experts and I pick a wine that pairs with it perfectly, and we enjoy the wine, and we talk about why that record 
change their life. And that's it. It's a really fun little lesson. So I'm in the middle of uh, getting season two done and we will post them all others like 10 from season one. We've had a little bit of a break because I got really deep in Eminem and we're going to have a new season up probably in like about two months. Okay. Maybe two months. Let's say two. It'll motivate me. Okay. <laughs> That's good. So it's fun. Yeah. Season one is great. Tommy was on there. Um, Nick Fleetwood, whose book, I, you know, it's like mostly people I worked with and other bands that I just really like. Uh, Nick Fleetwood is on there. There's a couple of cool winemakers. Um, Josh from Fanagram. Uh, you know that band. His was really good. Uh, it's, I mean, it's fun. Have, if you like wine and you like some serious, like nerdy music talk and get at it. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on that because I know just how much, you know, it's so it's such an enjoyable when you put out a, a solid podcast and you get positive feedback. So I think the fact that you're doing something, combining music and wine, that sounds good to me. And uh, I did want to ask you too, before I let you go, um, on your bucket list, like, is there an artist right now that you still would love to work with and, and write about? Oh, boy. Um, well, I really want to work with Prince and David Bowie. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, and Tom Petty. But, uh... I mean, he doesn't need me, but I would do anything for Bruce Springsteen. Um, <laughs> That's good. Let's see who else. You know, I'm actually pretty, I, I kind of want to meet, I do want to meet Harry Styles because I really respect his evolution and he's got a really good voice. Um, and I feel like there's a good story there. That guy definitely piqued my interest. Um, gosh, this is a tough one. Bucket list is tough. I mean, I probably do Madonna's book. Come on. Oh, please do. That would be amazing. Yeah, I would. Because, you know, she would like, it would be like a concept and it would be interesting. I would, I would love to do Madonna. Um, gosh, I don't even know. Who else is there? Who am I forgetting? Kelly, well, who am I forgetting? Well, I'm wondering too, like, because I, I, you know, in that interview that I heard you do, um, you talked a lot about being like a 90s kid. And so I'm just wondering if there's anybody from the 90s, like, obviously you're doing the Wu-Tang thing, but it, like, is there any sort of 90s pop star or like guilty pleasure that you'd be like, ah, oh, like I could do that? Um, let's see, a 90s pop star or guilty pleasure. I mean, there has to be. I wish George um, Michael was still around. I'd love for you to do, have done a book with him. You know what? I was actually pursuing that. Were you? I really okay. was. Okay. Yeah, George Michael uh, was totally pursuing that before he died, and there was a possibility there was an opening there. I was like a, I was also like an '80s um, original wave goth, so I've kind of been, I've been getting polite, um, polite nose from Robert Smith of The Cure for years. Oh, okay, but like through my old agent, they were like, he's not really willing, not ready or willing to do it, but honestly, is impressed, and we'll get in touch when he wants to. Um, that I would do, I suppose. I'm trying to think of other 90s people. Uh, I met with Puff Daddy like twice. Oh, did you? How'd this, that go? But I met with him twice. And he like forgot the, the first time that we met. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> okay. but I don't think he's ever going to do that. But like uh, that kind of comes around every couple of years. And we have another meeting. And I mean, that guy's he's definitely got a story. Like, you yeah. know, he's, he's, it's pretty amazing. Um, I feel like I'm going to hang up with you and remember like five <laughs> people from the 90s. <laughs> Uh, I've also met Billy Corgan a couple times. He's oh. kind of a pump, but okay. I would do the Smashing Pumpkins book in a second. Um, 
Would you ever do? Would you ever do like a like a book on one hit wonders and where they kind of ended up or not ended up? Because like I know there's a bunch of '90s people that obviously are, are that you know have that claim to fame. Or even like I you know we haven't talked about this, but like what's your thoughts on like '90s dance people? Let's say like a Crystal Waters or a Cece Peniston or a Martha Wash. Like does any of that pique your interest? Interesting. Um, I have. Well, I, I something did just come to me, so I'm just going to say this name, and then we're going to go back to this question. But Oasis. Okay. Although I'm not sure if I could actually understand anything they're saying, <laughs> so it might be more of a novel. <laughs> like I don't know if I'd actually know what they're talking about. So, but I would like to try. Okay. Because that's that's a pretty damn good story. Um, the one hit wonder thing. It's funny because when I was first at Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone used to have a thing called the charts page on the back. And as an, as a young assistant, I was in charge of putting this together and I sort of came up with the idea to have a little interview. And so I interviewed almost like every nineties one hit wonder, like from, you know, Chumbawamba to like, you know, three doors down is going to have a career by the time they seem like one hit wonder, um, you know, collective soul, like all of those people, third eye blind. <laughs> um, so I have kind of a collection of all these interviews of, of you know, Smash Mouth of worlds and stuff like that. Yeah. So it could, I, I see what you're getting at here to like, are you, it's kind of like a where are they now book? Almost, yeah. Like, and just like, like, and yeah, I think that would be cool. Cause like, I, I love, like, for example, um, I was a huge Crystal Waters fan, like back in the day. And the fact Crystal that Crystal Waters is, yeah, she's great. Yeah, she's great. And she, and it's continuing. Like she has like 13 number one dance hits or something ridiculous. And like, I love that she's still going and that song Gypsy Woman still pays her mortgage. You know what I mean? And so, and the same thing for like wow. CeCe Peniston, like they still have careers and they're still out on the dance scene. Martha Wash, like all these people um, are still doing stuff, even though maybe some people think they're not around anymore, but they're, you know, they're definitely big and hot in the LGBTQ community. I'll tell you that. That is really interesting. You give me some food for thought, Kelly. That's what I'm here for, Anthony. God bless her. That's great. Good for her. That's awesome. Yeah, I didn't no, even know that. Yeah, yeah. No, they're still doing their thing. And I just love how, and you know, and Crystal's been, you know, she's a businesswoman. She has her own, uh, you know, uh, record label and the whole thing. And she just said, she's like, you know, because pe- she obviously people ask her about Gypsy Woman and 100% Pure Love. And she's like, I will never diss those songs. They have sustained me and kept me around. But she still managed to have like more hits. Like she had another dance hit last year. And I just love that they've continued to work the the EDM scene and, and to evolve and, and keep going. And they're like in their late 40s, early 50s at this point. So I I think it's awesome that, that they're still so doing cool. their thing. Yeah, it's That's awesome. That's really awesome. Final question for you. Looking okay. back on your childhood, like, did you ever imagine this life for Anthony Boza? <laughs> no, <laughs> absolutely not. No, it makes so much sense, though, because I was like a, a, I was a history nerd and liked writing term papers. <clears throat> and I've just been like obsessed with music since I was a kid. Okay. Um, and my, you know, my parents had a pretty good record collection. My dad really likes music. So, uh, so it made sense. Cause for some reason I was like the weirdo who read the liner notes, like every album I'd pull out and be like, huh, I wonder where this studio is. Like I, I wanted to know what all these people did yeah. that like, were part of making the record. So it makes complete sense, but no, I did not. I didn't think I'd be doing this at all. I plan, I wanted to be a history professor okay. or something like that. Um, but yeah, no, this was a this was a wonderful surprise. Well, we're all very happy you did not turn out to be a history professor. So thank you for not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you so much. You're too kind. Anthony, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been super awesome to have you, and I hope you'll come back. All right, I sure will. That is uh, author and writer Anthony Boza. Again, a New York Times bestselling author. You can learn more about him on his website, aboza.com. Time now for some new music. Time and drug waste. It's not wasted time, so stay till the morning. Stay for a while. 
Alesso is a Swedish DJ and producer who Madonna once said was going to be the next big thing in dance music, and she was right. He's worked with lots of great artists like Madonna, Usher, Calvin Harris, and Ryan Tedder of One Republic. This time around, he has teamed up with One Direction's Liam Payne on a song called Midnight, and as you can tell, they have definitely crafted a solid mid-tempo EDM track with orchestral sounding synths. It's awesome. The Black Eyed Peas have found their mojo again. They recently released a hit song called Ritmo with J Balvin, and now they are back with another gem that just gets stuck in your head and makes you feel good. The song is called Mamacita and features the newest member of their group, J Ray Soul, who has taken over vocals from Fergie. And if you didn't know better, you'd think it was Fergie herself still in the group. She sounds amazing. And don't forget to check out the music video for the song. It is so much fun, a great escape. Canadian artist Lennon Stella has released a new single in advance of her upcoming album. The song is called Fear of Being Alone, and as you can tell, this is a great track for her. It definitely showcases her whispery vocals and has an awesome melody and interesting instrumentation. Lennon's debut album called 321 drops on the 24th of April, and if Lennon sort of seems familiar to you, it might be because she was on the hit show Nashville for many years, and she's also been on tour with the Chainsmokers and Five Seconds of Summer. So she is definitely on the way up. Well, thanks so much for spending time with us on the program this week, and a big shout out to our guest, New York Times bestselling author, Anthony Boza. My thanks to Adam Brisson for being an amazing producer. And don't forget, you can listen to us on many different podcast platforms, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher Radio. We'd also love for you to grab all of our social media handles. You can do that by hitting up our website, kellyalexandershow.com. Have an amazing week. You and I'll chat soon. The Kelly Alexander Show.